Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of August 17th, 2023. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And this past weekend, on August 12th, I participated through the miracle of Zoom in a panel at the Los Angeles Anarchist Book Fair entitled Ukraine and Anarchist Internationalism. And we are going to air some of the audio from this panel forthwith. To identify the speakers, the first one is yours truly, ranting in my usual manner, immediately followed by my fellow New York activist and writer Yevgeny Lerner with a presentation on a critical and underreported aspect of the Ukraine war, the struggle of the Crimean Tartar people for land recovery and territorial autonomy, now unified with the general struggle of Ukraine for national survival against Russian aggression, and a text version of Yevgeny's presentation also now appears on the Counter-Vortex website under the title Crimea, Ukraine's Other National Liberation Struggle. So do check it out. And uh, we are followed by Wayne Price, author of The Abolition of the State, Anarchist and Marxist Perspectives, who puts the question of why anarchists should support Ukraine and he agrees that we should, in a theoretical framework. In the interest of time, we are just going to include the more repertorial presentations by Yevgeny and myself. The full version is up on YouTube, so you can um, Google it up, and we'll also link to it on the Counter Vortex website. We are introduced by Javier Sethnis, one of the organizers of the book fair and author of Inter Alia, Eros and Revolution, the critical philosophy of Herbert Marcuse. So let's give this a listen, and then I'll have a few follow-up things to say on the way out. Thank you to everyone here for your interest in this panel on Ukraine and anarchist internationalism. Thank you, too, to our three speakers. My name is Javier Sutnes, one of the Anarchist Book Fair co-organizers. Let me begin by saying here uh, that by anarchist internationalism, I mean resistance to domination across borders. Each panelist today will have 15 minutes to present, and then we will have discussion and questions and answers from the audience. We'll be recording the initial presentations, but not the q and I'm going to introduce our panels in order of appearance and then make some introductory comments of my own. So first up, Bill Weinberg is, a, is an award-winning 30-year veteran journalist in the fields of human rights, indigenous peoples, drug policy, ecology, and war. He is the author of Homage to Chiapas and blogs daily and podcasts weekly on world autonomy struggles at countervortex.org. Next, Yevgeny or Eugene Lerner is a Kiev-born New York-based anarchist, activist, writer, and artist who has spent most of the last three and a half years in the fetal position and added horrified murmuring to his repertoire early last year. Thirdly, 
Wayne Price is a longtime activist and theorist of revolutionary anarchism and libertarian socialism. He's written many articles for journals and websites and several books, including The Abolition of the State, Anarchist and Marxist Perspectives. He's often written in defense of the Ukrainian people in the current war. To begin then, in his 2022 book, Invasion, Guardian journalist Luke Harding provides a devastating account of the recent intensification of the Russo-Ukrainian war, which Vladimir Putin launched in 2014 as retaliation for the popular ouster of Ukraine's pro-Russian president Viktor Yanukovych. Putin significantly escalated this war by ordering Russia's February 2022 full-scale invasion of its westerly neighbor. Harding pulls no punches in describing Russia's massacres of civilians in Bucha, near the Ukrainian capital city of Kyiv, and the destruction of the port city of Mariupol as, quote, chilling displays of 21st century fascism, end quote. In Mariupol, the Russian military killed at least 20,000 residents. More recent claims go as high as 100,000. By means of comparison, the Nazi invaders killed 10,000 Ukrainians during their occupation of the city in World War II. Some of the atrocities committed by the Russians during the siege of March 2022 include the deliberate bombing of the Mariupol Drama Theater, where hundreds of residents, including many children, had been seeking shelter, plus the ghastly bombing of the city's maternity hospital number three, as documented in Mstislav Chernov's heartbreaking film, 20 Days in Mariupol. In March 2023, the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Putin and his assistant, Maria Lvova Bielova, for war crimes committed in Ukraine, specifically for the forcible transfer of thousands of, of Ukrainian children to the Russian Federation. In a recent analysis published in the Journal of Genocide Research, Yulia Yofe finds Russia's industrial-scale deportation of Ukrainian children to be plainly genocidal, recalling past practices not only of the Soviet Union and Tsarist Empire, but also of the settler colonial U.S. and Canada. Estimates of the total number of forcibly transferred Ukrainian children ranges widely from 20,000 to over 200,000. Furthermore, a harrowing new Associated Press report details that Russia is enslaving thousands of Ukrainian civilians in occupied territories to support its war effort, echoing Nazi practices during World War II. Since late July, the Daily News has been filled with bombings of apartment buildings in southern Ukraine by Russian anti-ship missiles. Just three weeks ago, after pulling out of the pact that permitted Ukraine to export its grain through the Black Sea, the Russian military bombed the Orthodox Transfiguration Cathedral in Odessa. This is not to mention Russia's destruction of the Nova Kahofa, Kahok, Kahovka Dam in, 20, in June 2023, time to coincide with the beginning of Ukraine's much-anticipated counteroffensive. This pre-planned disaster has flooded thousands of homes, wiped out animal populations and ecosystems, and spread chemical pollution. Plus, by disrupting irrigation systems, this act gravely threatens Ukrainian agriculture. And here I want to note that this is very similar to the policy implemented by General Curtis LeMay during the Korean War, similarly to target irrigation dams. It's important to note that Putin's genocidal assault on Ukraine bears many similarities with Russian fascist attacks in the post-Soviet period on Chechnya and Syria. In many ways, the ruins of Mariupol resemble those of Grozny and Aleppo. 11 million Ukrainians have been made either refugees or internally displaced people, while 12 million Syrians have been displaced within the country or across borders since 20, 2011. Even so, 
Given this grim context, many leftists across the globe have downplayed, ignored, and or misinterpreted the reality of Russia's genocide in Ukraine, just as they did previously with Bashar al-Assad's fascist suppression of the Syrian revolution, assisted by none other than Putin. To wit, the Spanish CNT calls for the immediate abolition of NATO, but not Russia's withdrawal from Ukraine. And Noam Chomsky, Code Pink, and the International Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America join hands with Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and other GOP extremists in calling for Ukraine to be cut off, despite the devastating consequences this would have. Even locally here in LA, the supposedly progressive radio station KPFK has pushed pseudo-anti-imperialist propaganda on the Ukraine question, just as it has about the Syrian revolution. Indeed, on the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion, KPFK host Margaret Prescott reversed reality in Orwellian fashion by blaming NATO rather than Putin for Russia's war on Ukraine. This spin is straight out of the Kremlin's playbook. In fact, official history books designed for 11th grade students openly cast Russia as a victim of the West and praise Putin's so-called special military operation. In parallel, KPFK now platforms the Gray Zone, which is a Russian fascist propaganda outfit. Plainly then, it is clear that there's an emotional plague discouraging international solidarity on much of the left when it comes to anti-imperialist rivals of the US. In contrast, on this panel, building on our discussion earlier today with solidarity collectives, we will approach the Russo-Ukrainian war from internationalist anarchist positions that are critical of disinformation and violence denial and supportive of, of national liberation, self-determination, self-defense, and the right to resist. We welcome initiatives like the UK-based Ukraine Solidarity Campaign's fundraising drives and the direct action taken by Welsh miners' unions to support Ukrainian miners, together with Ukraine's resistance, as seen in the sinking of Russia's Black Sea flagship Moskva in April 2022, and the more recent disabling of the Olenogorsky Gurnyak troop transport ship. We wish the Ukrainian counteroffensive success in liberating occupied Ukrainian territories, including Crimea, despite the significant obstacles it faces. We look forward to discussing these pressing issues with you in the Q&A period. Over to Bill. Okay, thank you, Javier. In this presentation, I will be urging support for Ukraine in its war of national survival against Russian aggression. However, I'm going to start this talk by actually honoring some genuinely heroic Russians which may seem like a paradoxical thing to do, but it's in the service of making a point, so please bear with me. Just this past week, it was reported that imprisoned Russian anti-war activist, Darya Palyudova, has been placed in punitive solitary confinement after guards allegedly found a razor blade in her belongings, which is considered a major violation at the penal colony where she is incarcerated in the North Caucasus Republic of Kabardino-Balkaria. Polyudova's mother told Radio Free Europe that her daughter said guards had planted the blade in her belongings to frame her, adding that Darya is starting a hunger strike to protest the move. Darya is affiliated with the left resistance dissident network made up of anarchists, feminists, and socialists. She was sentenced to nine years in prison in December on 
extremism and separatism charges related to her nonviolent opposition to the Russian war in Ukraine. The charges stemmed from three posts she published on VK, Russia's most popular social media network, their equivalent of Facebook. All three of the posts were related to Ukraine. The one that triggered the charge of incitement to separatism was not even written by her. It was a sarcastic comment by another user, which Daria reposted about supposed demands by ethnic Ukrainians in Russia's Krasnodar Republic to be incorporated into Ukraine. Get it? The second post, deemed by authorities a public call to extremist activities, was a photo of Daria with a poster that said, no war in Ukraine, but revolution in Russia, exclamation point, end quote. The third post stated that Russians needed to follow the example of Ukraine's Maidan revolution of 2014, take to the streets and bring down the regime. You may recall that in the immediate aftermath of the Russian invasion last March, there was a tremendous outbreak of anti-war protests that swept across Russia. But this was met with a wave of repression some 15,000 were arrested, and the Duma, Russia's parliament, passed a law instating a 10-year prison term, not only for protesting the war, expressing any dissent to it at all, but even for calling it a war, as opposed to the official euphemism of a special military operation. And after that, the street protests subsided, but anarchist-spirited anti-war reality hackers found creative ways to get around the draconian law. One group, Feminist Anti-War Resistance, started stealthily replacing price tags on supermarket shelves with messages about Russian atrocities in Ukraine. One young woman, Alexandra Skochilenko, was arrested in connection with such activity in St. Petersburg last April and faces up to 10 years in prison for discrediting the Russian armed forces, quote unquote. There are also Russian anarchists who are fighting for Ukraine. And one was killed in action back in April of this year, Dmitry Petrov, a founding member of the Combat Organization of Anarcho-Communists, BOAC, which has actually carried out sabotage attacks on military facilities within Russia. He was killed fighting near Bakhmut in a farewell note written in case of his death and published by BOAC. Petrov stated, quote, I tried my best to contribute to defeating the dictatorship and to the social revolution, and I am proud of my comrades who led and are leading the struggle in Russia and abroad, end quote. Petrov, who had previously fought for the Kurdish forces in Syria, was part of an anti-authoritarian platoon integrated into Ukraine's territorial defense forces. Having opened with these accounts of three heroic Russians, and I will shortly explain my reasons for doing so, I want now to salute the heroic Ukrainian resistance to Russia's 
genocidal aggression. And if you don't think that's what it is, I submit that you should stop watching RT and Sputnik and Gray Zone and read some actual human rights reports. I especially want to salute the armed anarchist units fighting in Ukraine, such as the aforementioned anti-authoritarian platoon, which from my sources has over 100 fighters. There is a website organizing international support for them dubbed Operation Solidarity. And they are linked to various radical left dissident groups in Ukraine who support the war effort while opposing the crackdown on labor rights under Zelensky and the continuing program of de-socialization, privatization of land, industry, and resources. These include the socialist group, Sotsialny Ruk, or Social Movement, and the Revolutionary Confederation of Anarcho-Syndicalists, RKAS. But I started talking about these heroic Russians partially to refute the absurd charges of Russophobia incessantly hurled at anyone who recognizes the fascistic nature of the Putin regime, and even of red-baiting and McCarthyism, quote-unquote, as if there were anything remotely red or communist about the contemporary ultra-reactionary savage capitalist Russian state, but also because there is some very deep confusion on the left in the U.S. and the West as to which Russians we should be supporting. Russians like Darya Palyudova and Alexandra Skochelenko and Dmitry Petrov are our natural allies as progressives and especially as anarchists. But the consensus position of the so-called anti-war left in the West is not to support them, but to support their persecutors and oppressors in the Kremlin. And please don't be taken in by the empty lip service of, oh, I don't support Putin, Putin is bad, but, because with those buts, you actually do support Putin. When you portray his illegal aggression as less than illegal aggression, by saying he was provoked into the war, when you cast doubt on his mass atrocities with odious and baseless false flag theories, when you stigmatize the Ukrainians as Nazis in chauvinist manner while ignoring the totalizing dictatorship that is unfolded in Russia, and when you advance Putin's military aims by calling on Ukraine to cede territory, yes, you do support Putin and don't pretend you don't. In the most important ways possible, you concretely and objectively support him. And these are all lines that we have heard over and over from prominent voices on the so-called anti-war left in the West and the United States. And this last point, that Ukraine must negotiate away territory for peace, or worse, that the U.S. should negotiate away pieces of Ukraine's territory for peace, 
is harped on endlessly by prominent left or pseudo left voices in the West, including Noam Chomsky, Medea Benjamin, and Cornell West, along with voices on the right, including Henry Kissinger, Elon Musk, Tucker Carlson, Marine Le Pen, and Donald Trump. To our chagrin, it falls to Radio Free Europe, voice of the U.S. State Department, which is accommodating or grooming repressive regimes elsewhere in the world, to report on the case of Daria Paludova. While there has been nothing on Democracy Now!, not a word about Daria Paludova or Alexandra Skochilenko or Dmitry Petrov. But Democracy Now! has repeatedly put on figures like Chomsky who call for the U.S. to negotiate Ukraine's future with Russia in the name of peace, which means ceding Ukrainian territory to Russian aggression and the people who inhabit those territories to permanent occupation or genocide, treating Ukraine exactly as Neville Chamberlain and Hitler treated Czechoslovakia, which, as you may recall, failed to prevent world war. Darya Paludova is precisely correct in invoking the heroic example of the Ukrainians in the Maidan revolution or the revolution of dignity as it is called in Ukraine, in ousting an oppressive and power-mad leader as exactly what needs to happen in Russia. And instead, leftists in the West call the Maidan revolution a Nazi coup without even knowing anything about it, erasing from history the mass protest occupation of Maidan Square which gave the movement its name, akin to Occupy Wall Street here in New York, but many times larger and more militant and facing far worse repression, deadly repression, and lasting throughout the bitter winter of 2013 to 14, which in Ukraine is no joke. We need regime change or revolution, as it used to be called, for Russia and victory for Ukraine and its territorial integrity as probably the only way to avoid international escalation of this war, potentially to the unthinkable, as well as to set a precedent that dictators, even of resurgent superpowers, can fall and better position progressive forces generally, and anarchists especially, on the world stage at this moment of global crisis and open windows of potential for revolutionary change worldwide. Thank you. Oh, uh, okay. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, Ukraine's other national liberation struggle because there are two. Uh, many would-be peacemakers have suggested that Ukraine give up some Russian-speaking territories in order to appease the aggressor. However, as Bill said, we already know where such appeasement get us, uh, or gets us, rather. Uh, Putin was not satisfied with what he could grab in 2014, so he marched on Kiev eight years later, and giving him more bits of Ukraine or even legitimizing his 2014 conquests will only encourage him to once again besiege, as the motherfucker calls Kiev, 
the mother of all Russian cities. Appeasement does not bring peace. The Second World War provides the classic general illustration and the uh, full-scale invasion of last year reaffirms it in this particular case. Uh, after a year and a half of Moscow's daily atrocities, by the way, and grisly horrors that are uncovered in the wake of every Russian retreat, those Russian-speaking Ukrainians are not cheering for the invader. Uh, very few were even before. Uh, but nevertheless, when you see these self-styled, quote-unquote, peacemakers uh, lay out how Ukraine should be unmade piece by piece, Crimea is always first on that shopping block. Uh, they point to Russia's de facto control over the peninsula, the majority ethnic Russian population, and the sham referendum conducted by the occupier. Well, as anarchists, we generally do regard controversies over uh, whether this or that state is the rightful owner of this or that piece of land to be something we got no stake in. And we do tend to respect uh, genuine expressions of popular will. Uh, that is not the 2014 referendum. It was conducted with no independent oversight by the Russian government, infamous for rigging elections, and in the midst of an intensive one-sided propaganda and armed intimidation campaign. And there was no secret ballot. The official figures claimed 83% turnout, 97 for annexation, but not long after, the Russian government website, or a Russian government website, that is, accidentally leaked a report publishing a 30% turnout, 55% voting for, you know. In 2022, the uh, occupied city of Kherson simil uh, similarly, quote-unquote, voted for annexation, uh, only to be liberated by Ukrainian forces to nearly universal public jubilation not two months later. Uh, uh, even if the Anschluss vote had had all of the institutional integrity and constitutional dignity of a Knesset election from an anti-colonial perspective, it would still have been illegitimate for the same reasons that we regard the state of Israel to be so, because much like the demographics which frame Israeli so-called democracy, the, democratic, uh, the demographics of Crimea were created by settler colonialism and genocide against native people. The indigenous Crimean Tatars overwhelmingly boycotted the sham referendum, whereas in 1991, they had been institutional to pushing Crimea uh, by a slim majority to vote yes on Ukrainian independence. The Majlus, uh, which is the executive council of their elected legislature, has also been an active participant in that Euromaidan coalition. And in their civil rights movement's first abnegation of non-violence in its heroic 70-year history, the Atesh partisan group has been making daring raids behind enemy lines in September. As anarchists, we must side with oppressed native people struggling for liberation and reject mere settler colonialism, or rather mere settler colonial majoritarianism. This is certainly the case when it comes to Palestine, so why should it not be the case when it comes to Crimea? The Crimean Tatars are the descendants of an amalgamation of various peoples, Greeks, Italians, Armenians, Goths, Scythians, who had migrated to Crimea over thousands of years. They underwent a gradual process of Tatarization around the 13th century AD under the political influence or rather dominance of the Kumans who first arrived from Central Asia in the 10th century. Their Turkic language formed the basis of Crimean Tatar, as well as the closely related languages of two other smaller indigenous Crimean groups, the Krimchaks and the Crimean Karaites. The word Tatar itself, in this case, refers to a Central Asian confederation that the Kumans had belonged to. Between the 15th and late 18th century, Crimea was the seat of the Crimean Khanate, a, a Muslim polity, which began as a local successor to a fragment of the Mongol Empire, the Golden Horde, and later became an Ottoman vassal. 
However, uh, Catherine the Great's empire invaded in 1783 in violation of a 1774 treaty which had guaranteed Russian and Ottoman non-interference in Crimea. Uh, this is a lot like the 2014 invasion uh, of uh, Ukraine in general, which was in blatant violation of the Budapest Memorandum from 1994, signed by Russia, the U.S., and the U.K., and that pledged uh, to respect Ukraine's borders in exchange for Ukraine's nuclear disarmament. But uh, let's get back to 1783. The Russian aristocracy immediately enclosed the Crimean commons, replacing customary and Islamic property relations with iron-fisted Muscovite feudalism. Uh, peasants lost access to pastures, woods, and rivers, and by 1790, this caused about a third of the population to flee, mostly to Anatolia. Russian rule also brought religious persecution. By the 1850s, the occupier was converting mosques into churches and working to return, as they put it, the Crimean Tatars to Christianity. This, as well as constant land grabs by Russian nobles, which became especially frequent in the aftermath of the 1850s Crimean War, served to cause further migration. 800,000 or so had emigrated or were expelled between 1873 and the start of the 20th century, and by then, the Crimean Tatars no longer comprised even a plurality in their own native homeland. Uh, none of this, however, can be even remotely compared to the murderous expulsion of 1944. The following years of humiliating unpersonhood and the 45 years of exile. For the Crimean Tatars, their Surgenlik is what the Holocaust is for my family. What the Nakba is for the Palestinian people, what the Trail of Tears is for the Cherokee Nation. Right after the Soviets recaptured Crimea from the Nazis, the NKVD rounded up the entire population of more than 200,000 Crimean Tatars, packed them into cattle cars with only a hole in the floor for a toilet, and sent them to exile, mostly in Central Asia. And in one case, the NKVD found that they had missed a spot, and instead of preparing another train, proceeded to simply load everyone onto an old boat and sink it in the middle of the Azov Sea, and they gunned down anyone who managed to escape. The death toll from the grueling journey to Central Asia itself, combined with the first few years of exile, was enormous. Uh, KGB undercount had 22% of the whole population. And according to a census conducted by Crimean Tatars many years later, going from family to family, 46% of their people were shot, starved, or worked to death. Many left with only the clothes on their backs when they went into exile and were deposited in areas with harsh and familiar climates. They were obligated to either live in tents or crude windowless mud huts, and they only had reeds to sleep on. They were forced to do hard physical labor 12 hours a day, seven days a week, starvation diet, and were under strict NKVD watch. And even families that were settled in somewhat more favorable conditions were functionally kept as prisoners, and anyone caught straying from their special settlement was liable for 25 years of even harder labor in a gulag. And back in Crimea's mild and sunny clime, uh, see if this pattern's familiar, ethnic Russian settler colonists were brought into the homes of the deported. Turkic place names were systematically russified. They erased them from the map. Mosques and cemeteries were torn down. Their books were burned from ancient manuscripts to even Marxist-Leninist texts in the Crimean Tatar language. The Crimean Autonomous SSR, which the Crimean Tatars had special status in as per Lenin's old indigenization policy, was dissolved into a mere oblast. The very name Crimean Tatar was removed from all official government publications and documents, including the census and the passport. 
they were just undifferentiated Tatars now, as far as the state was concerned, and suddenly native to Central Asia. This was one of many brutal ethnic cleansing operations under Stalin's reign. Local Greeks, Bulgarians, and Armenians were also removed from Crimea itself that same year, but only the Crimean Tatars were systematically erased as a nationality and exiled well into the Gorbachev years. The official justification was that they had collaborated with the Germans and therefore constituted, this is, this is the word, a traitor people. Uh, the monstrous absurdity of this very idea aside, there's never been any evidence that there was even a higher rate of collaboration among them. Uh, almost all the able-bodied Crimean Tatar men were in the Red Army anyway, and the cattle cars were full of women, children, and old people. Uh, and Saidia Frenova, who was the savior of 74 Jewish children and who had kept her silence under Nazi torture, was in there with them, as were a number, by the way, of uh, surviving Jewish Krimchaks after 75% of them had already been murdered by the Nazis. So the big lie of denazification as a pretext for genocide is not something that Putin just thought up last year, but a page straight out of Stalin's playbook. In 1967, Decree 493 officially granted them the right to live anywhere in the USSR, but there was a catch-22. Whenever they tried to come back to their homeland, they couldn't get the residency permits. You needed those in the USSR. Even Abrahim Rashidov, a hero of the Soviet Union, had to threaten to set himself on fire to get one. 12,000 people made the trip that year. Only 100 or 150 managed to stay. And the official Soviet line was that they didn't really want to come back. They'd gotten used to exile. And... Only about 5,000 had managed to repatriate by 1979. Uh, it, was, it was hoops of fire they had to jump through. You know, after four decades of bitter struggle, protests and prison sentences, hunger strikes, self-immolations, insults piled on top of injuries, however, Glasnost finally opened the door for mass repatriation, though not without further hardships because the local bureaucrats in Crimea, surprise, surprise, were drawn from the population of Russian settler colonists who were still living in indigenous people's stolen houses and who were now staging racist protests against the so-called traitors, as they called them, even as, uh, you know, yeah, anyway, local Russians organized to buy up land to keep Crimean Tatars from moving in. It was that bad. And even after the state orders had been rescinded, uh, they still had to march. They still had to have around-the-clock pickets, more hunger strikes. A couple of people even set themselves on fire to get the residency papers. The Soviet breakup, oddly enough, also brought new difficulties. Uh, the newly independent Ukrainian Republic did not actively stand in their way of coming back, but they didn't provide any accommodation either. Uh, of about uh, 150,000 Crimean Tatars who had returned by 1991, well, they got Ukrainian citizenship, but anyone who came back after had to pay the same fees and uh, go through the same rigmarole as any other so-called immigrant. And their language revitalization efforts probably got more help from Ankara than Kiev. Nevertheless, nearly 260,000 had gone through all that to come back by 2001. And while Moscow, as I have uh, demonstrated, has been an enemy and tormentor of the Crimean Tatar people for centuries, uh, as well as the architect of both of their defining historical tragedy and uh, their inability to come back, um, Kiev has not always exactly been their stalwart patron and defender either. But even at the worst of times, the Republic of Ukraine has merely been indifferent or inattentive.
The situation in recent years, however, has become markedly better in this regard. In 2014, the High Rada finally recognized the Crimean Tatars as an indigenous people of Ukraine. In 2015, the deportation was officially recognized as genocide. In 2021, indigenous status was written into the law and given legal force as per another long-standing demand. Perhaps a day late in the Hrivna short, but it's something. Uh, the Russian Federation is something else. Uh, they've been drumming up anti-Tatarism in Crimea since before they took over, since the mid-2000s. Uh, they were running that operation out of uh, the Black Sea headquarters that they had leased from Ukraine in Sarasopol. Russian military intelligence has been a patron of anti-Tatar Russian chauvinism, and in the beginning it was deliberately uh, to inflame ethnic hatred in order to sow chaos after Ukraine's Orange Revolution had kicked out uh, Yanukovych, or rather prevented him from taking power after 2004's Russian-rigged election. Now in Ukraine, the Majlus has had official standing with the Ukrainian government since 1999 as an advisory council to the president on Crimean Tatar matters. And in 2014, the Rada also explicitly recognized their elected self-organized government as the official representative body of the entire Crimean Tatar people. Now under Russian occupation, the Majlus has been outlawed since 2016. Their headquarters in Samarapol uh, seized by Russian authorities as part of a campaign of intimidation, repression, detatarization, and russification. Activists, community leaders, journalists are being thrown into prison. They are being disappeared and murdered. Many Crimean Tatars are being harassed by law enforcement, arrested and detained as they simply try to go about their day-to-day -day lives sometimes to extract false testimony from them about members of their community. Aggressive police searches of Crimean Tatar homes have become routine. Physical abuse and torture by law enforcement has also been often reported, as well as the highly disturbing return of that vile Soviet practice of using psychiatric confinement as political repression. And much like any other Non-Russian ethnic minorities under Moscow rule, they have been specifically targeted for military conscription, in this case, a war crime because Crimea is occupied territory. Uh, between 2017 and 2022, there have been a total of about 7,000 human rights violations just documented uh, by the Crimean Tatar Resource Center in Crimea. And 5,613 of them were against Crimean Tatars. They are being specifically targeted for repression. Community gatherings and, commem and commemorations have been suppressed. Commemorations of the genocide have been suppressed. Crimean Tatar flags and their national symbols are effectively banned in public places. Mosques are being targeted for surveillance, much after like you saw in this country after 9-11. Most Crimean Tatar language schools have been forced to close. Every single Crimean Tatar broadcast station and every newspaper but a single one was closed down in 2015. Thousands have fled Crimea, only uh, or rather or uh, have been kicked out. Uh, meanwhile, about 200,000 or so fresh Russian settler colonists have been brought in by the government. Moscow, it turns out, is still Moscow. Same as it was in 1783, same as it was back in 44. But Crimea is still Crimea, friends, and Ukraine's ongoing national liberation struggle is also the national liberation struggle of the Crimean people. And if we as anarchists still hold ourselves committed to anything like anti-colonialist principles, and we ought to know what side we're on. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Yevgeny Lerner. Once again, the full version of the presentation is on YouTube, so do check it out. 
if you want to hear the talk by Wayne Price, which comes up next. But uh, I just have one thing to say to follow up on my own remarks. Well, two things to say. First is, I trust that my Ukrainian friends will not mind that I began my presentation by invoking three heroic Russians who have sacrificed to oppose Putin's war effort, paying with their freedom, and in one case, with his life. Darya Polyudova, Alexandra Skochilenko, and Dmitry Petrov. I think I justified my reasons for doing so, and I don't think I detracted from the point of the necessity to support the Ukrainian war effort. But I also wanted to follow up on my complaint that Democracy Now! failed to cover any of these cases of persecuted Russian anti-war dissidents. Or, if they did cover any of those three cases, there isn't a trace of it on their website that I could find. So, it couldn't have been very prominent coverage. I'm just going to go with, they haven't covered them. But I will point out that on August 10th, they gave very prominent coverage to a Ukrainian peace activist, quote-unquote, Yuri Shilyazenko, who was just arrested by Ukrainian authorities and charged with justifying Russian aggression, quote-unquote, and it seems like he may face prison, although the report was vague on what kind of term we're talking about. The charge is apparently related to a manifesto he wrote up, officially issued by his rather grandiosely named group, the Ukrainian Pacifist Movement, seemingly a movement of one, or maybe a very small coterie of friends, and the manifesto includes all of this both-sides rhetoric, quote-unquote, actually blames the war on both sides, and includes lines such as, quote, it is wrong to take the side of any of the warring armies, quote-unquote, and naively calls for negotiations, quote-unquote, even though Russia has made clear that its illegal annexations of Ukrainian territory are not on the table. Peace activist, eh? It should be surrender activist. And he's been sort of adopted as a token Ukrainian by a stateside hippie fascist outfit calling itself World Beyond War, which actually bandies about the slogan, Russia is our friend, quote, unquote, verbatim. The same slogan widely used by white nationalists and neo-Confederates and other elements of the radical right. Now, they seem not to have used that slogan since February 2022, when the full-scale invasion began, perhaps deeming it too impolitic but they were still prominently using it as late as 2018, from what I was able to determine online. Yeah, the regime that had, by 2018, annexed Crimea, occupied Donbass, 
and destroyed Aleppo with aerial bombardment are the friends of the pacifists. Another one to file under Orwell Wood shit. So I think Yuri Shiliazenko is a dangerous idiot. Not dangerous, I should add, because I think he has any chance whatsoever of undermining the Ukrainian war effort, but dangerous because of the propaganda value that he has for Russian efforts to sway public opinion here in the West. But I also have to say that arresting and charging him is an incredibly bad move by Kyiv from a propaganda perspective. Tankies will have a field day rallying around him, as does, ironically named, <clears throat> Democracy Now! I also want to state that I support the right to conscientious objection to military service, which is Shiliazenko's big cause, but I have to add that a responsible and morally serious pacifist position in the midst of a war of aggression is a very difficult proposition, and Shiliazenko quite dramatically fails at it. So, as noted, there has been nothing on Democracy Now!, not a word about the heroic Darya Palyudova or Alexandra Skochilenko or Dmitry Petrov, but it's given a big splash, like it's major news, when this annoying Yuri Shiliazenko gets busted. And this is how so-called progressives in the United States get an utterly distorted view of the situation vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine. This fictional notion that they are both dictatorships, or worse, that Ukraine is the dictatorship and Russia is waging a war of denazification. So, I'm not sure that Amy Goodman, the producer of Democracy Now!, is herself a tanky, but she's definitely abetting tanky and Russian propaganda. And this distorted view is pervasive throughout left media in the U.S. We have to start doing better. It is really urgent. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.